All right. Welcome, one. Welcome, all, to the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of adventure, sports, culture, music. We're trying to understand the hurdles that they had to overcome, the tips and the tricks that made them better exploring the inflection points, the transition points in their careers. Today, we got a real interesting guy, a guy named Sal Masakela. He's the face of Red Bull TV. He's also a producer and host of the Vice World of Sports. Uh, he's a storyteller. He's a musician as well. Um, he's able to offer us real interesting insight into not only the growth of action sports and, and his role in that, but um, also the, the role of race uh, in action sports. He was one of the only black surfers in Carlsbad, California in the early 1990s. We talked a little bit about that, about growing up. We talk about his unique background. His father is the jazz trumpeter Hugh Masakela, who fled apartheid South Africa to build a career. Um, for those of you who know Sal as the face of the Red Bull TV season of festivals, which is kicking off soon, and just know him as the guy who gets to hopscotch from Lollapalooza to Bonnaroo, which is getting the sweetest inside access to, to those music festivals, uh, you'll get to see a deeper side of him, uh, a more nuanced side, uh, really understand his background. For those of you who don't know him, um, you'll get the real interesting perspective of a, a storyteller who, who learned how to craft his own voice uh, in an industry that, uh, that was emerging in the 90, 1990s and now is really considered fully formed. Uh, hope you like it, and uh, here we go, Sal. This is uh, my whole family on my dad's side. And so when you go, is it how long do you usually spend out there? You know, it's South Africa. And it's a journey. It's crazy. So I try not to go for less than a week. Goal. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes, uh, I, like, I actually have to go in May. I think I'm going to be there for four and a half days. And that That's sucks because it takes you two weeks to recover from that trip, basically. Yes. So yes. Four and a half days might take two weeks off of your life. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the deal. It's crazy. It's it. I didn't. I had no idea. It was twelve hours to Europe, and then twelve hours all the way down there. And the it, only it, place that's farther to get to for me is like when I go on a surf trip to the Mentawais. That's what would that be? Physically that be longer. To, that would be to Thailand. And no, to it's to southern Sumatra. Yeah, but you so you end up going like to Singapore, and then from Singapore, well, usually China, China to Singapore, Singapore. Yeah. to Jakarta, Jakarta to this area called. Um, Oh, what's the other city? Like another two hours away from there, and then you get on a boat, and you take that boat about twelve hours. So with all the layovers, etc., it That's ends gnarly. up being about a forty-three hour journey. I bet it's completely, utterly worth it when you get there. <laughs> it is. The yeah. decompression is uh, rapid. It's like stepping through some weird time portal. Yeah, and you have no, um, even no Wi-Fi. Right, which is uh, a rarity. Even I think that's doesn't. actually going to be the the future of luxury, like luxury life experiences that people will provide. I think are going to be these experiences where you're totally d twenty first centrified for like peak periods of time, so that people because the the experience that I get at least when I don't have Wi Fi for a week and I'm in that kind of a place, it's just like you you step into this thing of presence that you don't. You actually don't know what to do with for the first few days, yeah, because you're so used to like processing all these random bits of information that have nothing to really to do with you. 
Are you hyper aware? Are you more aware? Yeah, than hyper aware. Yeah. yeah, hyper aware, super sensitive, emotional. Uh, rad it's good i mean it must be good for you i you know we there's there's so much ground to cover with you because you know you're a producer you're the host of you know the festival season on red bull tv you know you you have a lot of fun doing that it looks like uh uh, you you know you have a background in surfing you're a musician uh there's all kinds of different touch points um you live in venice but you're always on the road it seems is that absolutely the case in terms of like you know just the energy and and the amount of time you you spend on the road is that yeah my girlfriend uh i'm in a new relationship like seven months and my girlfriend said that it seems like if i'm home for longer than three weeks i'm not comfortable which is really hard to hear from someone that you're endeavoring to spend your life with. Right. That they can look at you and be like, you're not happy to be here. You should go someplace. Right. Um, and I don't feel that way in my head. But I think there are certain things that subliminally start to happen where I'm just restless. Because I'm used to, I always have something different going on. You know, one day I'll be here at Red Bull um, recording episodes of the Red Bull Signature Series. The next, I'm off in another country um, doing an episode of my Vice World of Sports show. A brand might hire me to come and be a mediator um, at a you know some sort of ideating seminar over the course of a weekend, or I might be doing <clears throat> voiceover work in a studio or playing music with my band or on a surf trip or helping consult on some brands or working on my foundation. And all those things sort of require getting up and going. Do they require different parts of you? They like, do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely require different parts of me. And they're different parts that I don't, I'm not uh, conscious of. They just show up. I sh- th- that part of me shows up best when I'm in that situation. And I think it's because I, I come from a really diverse background. Um, my dad's a musician. Um, Hugh Masekela. Act- yeah. yeah political much. activist. Yeah. Hugh Masekela. My mother is a holistic health um, practitioner and guru and has been since way before it was cool so my mother was like back when it was a bit weird yeah when my mother was the weirdest woman on the block like in what sense in that you know we had carob and sugarless uh a sugarless household when it was all the rage to only be eating things that were advertised on television god you must have wanted frosted flakes yeah no i was the kid that who got lunch shamed right because he had like some sort of weird multi-grain bread with um, almond butter and banana. That and, must have driven you crazy, apple. man. It did. <laughs> I went and ate, I ate in the corner. Cool. Yeah. But, you know, fast forward and it's like, thanks, Mom. Right. You were you were right on. Surely you had your years of rebellion. Oh, you I did. When I, first moved, when I first moved out the house and I was like 19, I just went apeshit. I think I called my mother one day about a weekend of living in my studio and I had a salad bowl, like a big oversized salad bowl of cinnamon toast crunch. And I, I called her, and she was like, "Hello," and I was like, and I like had food in my mouth. I was like, "Hi, mom." I'm like, "What are you doing right now?" I said, "I'm eating a big bowl of um, sugar cereal of cinnamon toast crunch." I just wanted to see how you felt about it. Like, what a dick who got <laughs> does that to their mother. And my mother was so amazed. She's like, "Well." Um, those are your choices. Oh man, and putting it back on you. I'm I'm really happy that you feel like you can share that with me. But just remember that uh, 
these are your choices and and you will live accordingly. Yeah, she's like Jedi mind trick. Jedi the fuck out of me. Yeah. And probably like t- eight, nine years later, when I started not being able to rely on my youth anymore, uh, I was calling her and being like, I don't know why I feel this way. And suddenly I'm 30 pounds bigger and all these other things. She's like, okay, well, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> and here you go. Moms do that better yeah, than anyone they, else, by the way. They do it awesome. But I think because of having parents like that that are sort of not normal in any sort of traditional sense um and living lots of different places you know being a you were born in new york right i was born in la you were born in la okay cedars raised in new york um till i was about 14 lived in new england for two years and then landed in california in carlsbad what brought you when i was 16 my mom um didn't want to be cold anymore and she hated New England was a very weird experience. Growing up in New York, growing up during the birth of hip-hop, and growing up in a very multicultural uh, environment where you were aware of, I think, everyone's uh, ethnicity and diversity was something that was normal. So, you know, it was... You just... You grew up familiar with with what makes people who they are, from their food to their music um, to their language to, to all of it, you know, to their... To the, to the actual traditional history, those are things that you celebrate, and it ends up finding its way into what you're eating and what you're listening to and who you're hanging out with, right? Totally, yeah. And then you move to a place where it's just white people, and people are looking at you like you're some sort of novelty because they don't have any concept of who you are or what your culture is, so it's easier for people to just sort of make you out to be some sort of... Um, Caricature. Yeah, like a caricature, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was what it was like growing up there. And I think my, my parents started to realize how weird it was and how hard it was for me. And my mom and stepdad had moved there because my stepdad had gotten a job that had him between New York and Boston. And it was just weird. It was like, I think, the first place where I experienced what racism was really made of. Um, and then my mother decided she didn't want to be cold anymore, and she was just over in New England, so we moved um, to California, to Carlsbad in the late 80s and my mother had a, a a friend i think that she had met at one of her alternative health conferences and she's like there's plenty of you out here in california um and that's how we got to cali and you went to a place that wasn't too much more no than i didn't carlsbad <laughs> <laughs> i went to the i i, I always say I, I went to like just like a, another uh a suburb of soweto like it was so white though um but in a different way and you know this this is now it's beach culture and you got these people who are living in this incredible utopia like well it's palm trees and joy everywhere and maybe not through any real fault of their own they also don't know anything outside of of their world um and i discovered mexicans when i got to high school like they were the only people who who weren't the white kids and i think it was interesting how what, when I when I got to, to Carlsbad, how comfortable, like once again, I'm the new guy, kind of like a novelty. They want to know your story. Like, oh, that's so cool, whatever. And then how comfortable I think the white kids felt in being able to describe the Mexicans to me um, and using the kind of terms that they did and, you know, joking with each other and calling them wetbacks and all this other stuff. Because like, they didn't feel you were associated with them? Yeah, or? I wasn't associated with it. Like, I was this cool new guy. Um, but you should know like they're, they're different than us, but we're going to let you be like a, you're like an honorary version of us. I remember, you know, being a, a year into being in Carlsbad and 
kids having no problem saying like, you know, you're not like a regular black guy. You're like different. Like you're more like us, especially since you, you skate and you, you learn to surf. Like it's cool. And I'd be like, no, it's not. That's not. Cool did, did you know that instinctively that it wasn't cool? Because surely, I mean, surely you did. You know, your father is, you know, South African activist during the apartheid era. But on the other hand, you want to be accepted, right? You're you're 16 years old. You're thrust into this new environment that's so foreign. Yeah, it's a it's a fine line. I mean, the first few times that it happens, um, it you 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 get a, a like an electrical sensation that lets you know like this is not right. But then whether or not you let that transfer outwardly, that takes a minute because it's not normal and you're trying to process what's happening. I think after like the third time that someone tried to set me up with a girl that they would describe for a while and be like, yeah, there's a school girl. You should meet her. Da, 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 da. And she lives like two towns over and you're like waiting, anticipating, anticipating like, yeah, you're going to love her. She's black. And you're like, I am. Why? Well, you know, because there's not like any other black girls, like black girls here. But like, I know this girl, and you're gonna be, you're gonna be so stoked. And you're like, oh my god. I mean, innocent but biting and brutal. Oh, you know, I, it's, it's like someone punching you in the throat. You're, it's a punch in the throat to you, and in their mind's eye, they might actually think they're giving you a hug. And that's that's when you get you start to understand just how deep and weird and layered, you know, the. Our, our history is that people can feel comfortable and not even knowing that they're that they're racist when they are. Did you talk to your father about that? And and maybe you can introduce him a little bit. Um, yeah, my my so my dad left South Africa in 1959 because of something called apartheid, which was basically legalized institutional uh, a system of racism in order for a country to govern that said. Indigenous people, black South Africans, are less than, than whites and Europeans. It was actually like a, a color-coded system. You know, you could be white being the highest and then colored, which would be like what we would consider light-skinned black people had a different race, uh, Indians uh, who were immigrants, uh, and, and then and black. And my, my dad just re- realized at a certain point you know, he was literally playing music with white musicians secretly because you weren't allowed we wouldn't be allowed to sit down and have this conversation. There'd be no reason for us to associate with each other unless I worked for your family or I worked for you. But we wouldn't live in the same town. We wouldn't live in the same neighborhood. You know, we would go our separate ways if you were a black person and you didn't have a, your passport. Like, imagine needing a passport to travel through Los Angeles. And, you know, if I want to go to Westwood, then I need to get a visa because I live in Venice, and there needs to be a stipulated reason why I'm going to be in Westwood, how many hours I'm going to be there. And when I'm done, um, make sure I get that thing stamped, and I better be back in Venice at a certain time. Otherwise, I'm an illegal alien over on that side, and I'm going to go to jail or, or worse. And these are just, I'm just mentioning a couple of small little things in a list of all sorts of rules and regulations that are dictated by the difference of, in how we look and where we come from. And my dad at a certain point was like, fuck this. Like, I can't live like this. You know, this isn't what I'm made of. And because he had an, an incredible um, person who believed in him, in, in a, a music teacher who helped arrange to get him some transport to London, he was able to get out of the country um, right when they were starting to look for him. You know, starting to have these raids and secret police. That had were, he already made a name for himself as a trumpeter at that point? He, he was locally well-known. Yeah, he was locally well known. He had been he had been playing music and was locally well known, um, and he had a lot of potential. 
and he he also knew he had to get out. I mean, they were throwing people in jail if there was any sort of any sort of like whiff that you might be organizing, you know, resisting, if you will. Um, and so he he went to London and then got from London. Uh, Harry Belafonte made it made a way for him. Wow. Uh, through a woman named Miriam McCaba. Legend. Was, um, yeah. Discovered my father and sent for him and got him from London to New York where my dad went to the Manhattan School of Music. Amazing. So he and he spent the majority of his life then in, in I'm guessing, in the United States, right, when he wasn't touring around? Yeah, 30 years um, in the U.S., yeah. in England, and in various parts of Africa that weren't South Africa. Yeah. I think at certain points, like my dad came here escaping this racist society and then he gets here right in time in time for civil rights so <laughs> you know wow. he's here in the 60s and you know he what an interesting transition point to come into this country in right especially when you come from that institutionalized racism coming in just at the beginning of the resistance against that and fruitful resistance ultimately as well that must have really shaped his view of this country i imagine it did i think it it it, it, and it allowed him to finally be able to use his full voice um, to to really support um, this revolution, if you will, you know, to resist and not feel like he was going to, um, you know, go to jail or, or worse for it. But still, he was experiencing it in real time and trying to navigate the, the, the weird, wild world uh, of the 60s and civil rights um, as a, an African who's just discovering America and has got no concept of it. He hasn't been on YouTube or, <laughs> or anything right. like getting his right. notes, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you have, were you at a good point in your relationship where you could share, um, you know, bringing it back to your experiences in Carlsbad, freshly arrived, um, with the kind of, you know, latent racism, however subtle or obvious, uh, did you have the opportunity to talk with him about that and share that? I did as I got older. Okay. I think at around 19 um, is when I think I started being more open because I also I didn't have a clue of really where I was going or who I was. I felt like I was all over the place. I felt like I was the child of you know this incredible dad. I had my shit with my mom and my stepdad. My stepdad was also very conservative religiously. Um, and I was living in this place where there wasn't anyone else who was like me um, that I could really identify with. So I was just trying to, f to do my best to fit in. But at certain points, there were, there were, there were things that were happening. I, I was working at a surf shop in, in Oceanside um, that I'd wanted to work at so badly to the point where I, I quit a job, a really well-paying job as a bank teller at Bank of America to go and work at this, this surf shop in Oceanside called um, Hobie. And um, it was the greatest job, and I had, I'd hung out in the shop all the time, so it was just natural that I finally get a job there. But um, a couple months in, I come in for, for work one day, and I look on the schedule, and my name's not on the board. So I went to the manager, and she's like, oh, you know, it's kind of slow right now, and, you know, you're the last one hired, so we're, we're, we're going to take out the schedule for a little bit. But when it picks back up, um, we'll get you right back on. And I was like, oh, wow, that, that's crazy. Got lucky, got back at the bank, got my old job back, and about three or four months later, I get a phone call from this guy, and one of the co-managers, who's his name's Aaron, and we had gone to school together. He said, "Listen, I'm not going to bullshit you. Like we didn't lay you off, and you were fired. You were let go because the owners did not feel that you 
because of your color fit the image of a surf shop. And they were worried that um, it was going to sort of damaging how, how the brand looked, like how the shop looked, because they didn't really buy into you being like a real person in this culture. And that's like, that's a really very, very strange thing to get as a kid. What know? year was that? This was 1990, 1990, 91. You know, and I remember I hung up the phone and I was sitting in the break room at the bank that I was working at and I just started crying, you know, and it just didn't make any sense. I was confused. I was like, well, I live this. This is, the surfing really had become like my music. You know, I had grown up, uh, grown up in New York and grown up on the East Coast, I would, I really was into music. My 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 earliest memories with my dad was was being in in jazz clubs with him at four, five, six years old. And then you're in the New York public school system. They're literally sticking an instrument in your hand and saying, "Which one feels good?" Okay, now you play that. Um, so having that influence of my father and then being in a place that really supported the arts, like that was my whole shit. And when I moved to Cali, that was it was a different deal. It wasn't you you had to grow up with some friends and be into some weird shit and have a garage band, but it, no one was forcing it on you. Right. And it was also just a different different thing culturally. And surfing and skating kind of became that creative outlet. Like, it felt like making music. It felt like this, this really personal, artistic form of athletic expression, and you had this culture that came with it, and music, and all this, this and how you dressed. It, it was a natural fit for me. And was it, was it, because, you know, surfing can also be very you know it can allow you to isolate yourself as well right it's kind of a, a lot of it's a little bit of a Coltrane run as well right yeah. you can just get in those moments where you're just by yourself in the water or uh, away from the lineup or not talking to anybody was that what attracted you or was it also this this feeling of was there really a culture for you to join into I think first it was just the experience it was literally standing on a moving piece of energy through the ocean standing there and having this moment where you stop and you're like, wait, I'm moving and time sort of slows down. And it was a very new spiritual experience. And in that moment, it was just like, okay, well, this is what you do now. And you need to pursue how all of this could possibly feel. Uh, then came the culture part of it where you, you this feeling of belonging um, or you're at least actually trying to break in. Right, because it's it's tough, yeah, right? It's yeah. like it's set and it's been set for a while, and you joined, you started serving sixteen. I came or, as late as you could come to the party, right? Like right, two months before my guys seven, been groms at seven years old in the water, yeah, and, and they've yeah. got generations and sure. their family are made of these watermen, um, and on top of it, you look different than everybody, so that's freaky. You know, they're literally letting you know that you guys don't even swim. How are you going to do this? Nice. Um, Always nice. So you're Jesus. trying to break into that. But then, especially as you're coming of age and you're dealing with all sorts of different things in your life, parents, um, just the, the normal teenage angst, it's your place to go away. You know, you could go by yourself and sit in the water and whatever is happening in land in your life doesn't exist in that moment. And it's an interesting play way to be able to do that without like having to go and do something fucked up right or like rely on substance or go make some bad choices um and it just it just comes naturally and pushing you as especially when you're a kid to see like what you're capable of you know how how it's you against this you trying to find peace with this massive powerful ocean that can kill you right but right. you're young and you're like, you can't kill me. <laughs> you know? 
that's right. rule you. You're unbreakable <laughs> at that age, yeah. for sure. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's all of that. So it, it, it represented, like, not just a, a means of, of getting to know people and feeling like you belong to a group. It represented something almost spiritual for you. Uh, you got fired because of something you had no control over. Um, why didn't you just leave surfing? Um, I don't know. I, I didn't leave surfing because I didn't feel like it was something that could be taken from me. You know, it, it, that just didn't, it didn't compute. My first initial reaction was, how do I like sue these people? Like I wanted to make a big deal out of it. I was angry. And my mother was actually, um, she, I'll never forget that conversation. My mother and my dad, both in different ways, put it in perspective. And it just came down to, is this the definition of, of what that means to you? This experience, this thing that happened, as shitty as it is, does that define your relationship with this thing? Because if you, if it doesn't, my father especially said, then figure out a way to inject yourself into this place, into this culture, in a way that no one can take it away from you. Um, so double down. Yeah, yeah. literally double yeah. down yeah. Was, was what it came down to. And how'd you do that? I, I don't know how, like, I, I just kept surfing. You know, I just, I, I kept surfing. I tried to put it behind me, and I kept finding joy in it. You know, yeah. I didn't. Were you good? I got good quick. Yeah, yeah. I was. Um, I had to. I had to play catch up. Uh, obviously, because all these I kids must have been for so a long time. determined. But I, I served. <laughs> I served. I served. I think uh, something like 170 days straight in the very beginning. Like I went out rain or shine by myself. It was good or bad because I had to play catch up, and I wasn't very good in the beginning at all took a while to, to get up to speed it's one of the hardest sports to learn i always tell people when they like if they've just moved to cali and they're yeah. like yeah i'm so stoked to be out here i'm gonna learn to surf <laughs> you might want to th- want to think about that what do you want to get out of this do you want something like that feels like a little bit like golf that you do every once in a while and if you're willing to have like one good shot every like 36 holes then yeah you can try surfing but if you think that you're going to get joy out of this and it's going to be like who you are if you've started anywhere after like 17, 18, and maybe I'll give you 24 if you were like a super athlete growing up, don't start surfing. It's the most humiliating, like just will wreck your own definition of who you are as a person. It's not, it's not easy. Um, but yeah, I got lucky in that I, I also was in a town where like all the best surfers in, in the whole of the industry was right there. I mean, Taylor Knox, who was a world tour surfer for a very long time, knocked on the door of a world championship. He was in the same grade as me. You know, and so you're, you're surfing with these kind of kids every day. But yeah, I just, I just stuck with it and found my joy in it. Snowboarding also became that next layer for me. And then um, I got a job at Transworld Snowboarding and Skateboarding Magazine. Doing what? Uh, I was an intern. Oh, okay. Intern answering the phones. Okay. And um, what year was this? That was uh, 93, ninety three. Super interesting time for uh, quote unquote action sports, right? Or back then it was extreme sports. It was. Uh, I think it was right before, maybe two or three years before someone put the term extreme on it. Okay. Ninety six was the first time someone on Madison Avenue was like, 
extreme sports. Let's get this money. There's all these kids out there that are doing shit, and they're not using our products. Did it feel like validation to work at a place like that? I mean, that was a, that must have been a big deal. It was, it was like among your circle finding of friends, home. right? Yeah, yeah, finding home, and it was it was finding home. It was like, okay, I'm not going to get fired because I surfed this morning, or because I want to work real hard all week and maybe snowboard on Friday. Like, I found a group of people all the way up to the executives of this corporation who live this idea. It's not a weird thing. I'd gotten fired from plenty of other jobs for that attitude, and I was finally in a place where people were like, no, this is actually how we live. Just curious, what kind of other jobs were you doing? <laughs> um, construction. Um, I was a framer, did tile, I hung drywall. I was a barback, bartender. Um, bank teller, customer service um, guy at Bank of America. Where you must have been you, good at that. I was really good at that one. Like if you called in yeah. and you're like, where the fuck's my money? Yeah. I was like, uh, thank you for calling Bank of America. <laughs> Sal Masekela here. How may I help you? And you would be like, where the fuck is my money? I deposited my check on Wednesday. It hasn't posted. My rent check. Like, sir, uh, you might not want to use that kind of language. Um, let me just hold on one moment. Have your account number, please. Fuck you. Like, sir, please don't use Like, that's literally yeah. <laughs> what that was. But I had a good way of diffusing people. Okay. Um, but I also, like, worked in that place in a row of, like, a hundred people all sitting in these little desks. And there were people who would walk, walk up and down the hallways looking at your, at your monitor to see how long you'd been on a call with someone. Because it all was based in talk time. And if they would print a report that was like, this is how many calls that you had today. Here's how long it took you to solve their problems. And here's your average talk time. We're not paying you to be on the phone. We're paying you to be on the phone with lots of people. Wow. And if we can't get your number of people served here yeah. and your talk time down here, we're going to have to ask you to go. And so that's what... <laughs> but surely you want people to be no. satisfied on the phone that, and that requires some in time a sh- in and the that- shortest time possible even if they like i was the person who got the most yeah. customer service like follow-ups where people would call back and commend yeah but i had the worst times yeah as you can tell by this conversation <laughs> this guy just doesn't fucking shut up this is also wonderfully <laughs> wonderfully tangential i should say as well so uh well that's great i mean uh, at least you're a real human being right? oh, jan- now, nowadays yeah. there's no yeah no janitor longer. yeah janitor. okay all right which was really good mm-hmm. cleaning office buildings at night this is like your early 20s though right yeah and yeah. were you going to college had you done that i went to college for six months okay just wasn't your deal it wasn't my deal okay okay so trans world and you're at a time you're in a place which gave you an amazing amount of freedom to kind of live the life that you wanted or that you'd already been living and access to whom to all the most influential people in this entire culture and sports you know the greatest photographers writers athletes the people holding the keys to you know what brands are going to get to be in the magazine it was like it it was switzerland and that everyone had to pass through there if they wanted to make it in every way shape or form if you were trying to sell a brand if you were trying to become uh you know the next hot shit athlete um or if you had a you know a skill to give you know that you wanted to tell stories you had to come through there and i was in the in the perfect place in this sort of explode when i started working there there was 25 employees yeah between you, two magazines. And you, I mean, when did the X Games start? X Games started in 
six or seven, I believe. Okay. And you'd been at Transworld how long when that kicked off? I I went. I worked at Transworld until uh, nineteen ninety five. Ninety five. Okay. Middle of ninety five, and then I went to work at um, a brand called Planet Earth Skateboards, um, and clothing, and helped Chris Miller um, launch Planet Earth Snowboarding Outerwear. And then I was did sales and team managers stuff there in the industry. So you in got you, you were basically you got this incredibly unique perspective on this industry that was at that point where was it? It was run one hundred percent solely by people who were passionate um, about these sports. Like if you had any other way in which you wanted to make money, you weren't trying to work in surfing, skateboarding, or snowboarding. You had to eat, eat sleep, and drink it. Um, and it wasn't monitored, you know, no one cared about it other than the people who were living it and trying to preserve, uh, the culture. There was not, there weren't even big giant brands who had decided to be like, we're going to showcase this lifestyle, you know, like, like a Red Bull that didn't, that didn't exist yet. You know, the only platforms were by people who just rolled up their sleeves and started something in their backyards. So were you, I mean, were you surprised that, that a major broadcaster like ESPN would be interested in something like that? I wasn't shocked because especially in the mid nineties, like actually it was exploding. Like everyone was trying to figure out a way to, to put a show on public access. I mean, you were dying for content. Think about it at the time. Like the only content you got was what was in a magazine. And that magazine came out once a month. And if you were lucky, like a real, there was a, there was one that came out every two weeks that was like a local magazine, and it was like sequential f- shots of like someone doing a trick. Yeah, and all you wanted when looking at that magazine was to see an actual real life version of that trick in front of you, right? Yeah, as opposed to like you know I mean? some photographer's representation of it. If a movie was coming out, it was hotly anticipated that people had been shooting it for the last year, and you went to the premiere, and you you went to two shows of the premiere. And then when someone got that tape or that DVD, you watched it until it didn't work anymore. You know, that was your content. Um, it wasn't anything like it is today. So when someone was finally smart enough to be like, there could be a home for this. And it's spectacular. Like some of the, the greatest athletes that are, that are alive are doing this, this thing that no one knows about. It made sense, uh, I think, for free ESPN when they launched the the extreme games we just all thought it was the worst thing ever because it was extreme like like I remember we'd be like what's extreme about us why why are they saying this and then there were extreme burgers and sodas and cars and all these things that just made no sense so uh did you know what role you wanted to play there did you have an idea already that I don't know, you wanted to become an announcer, you wanted to be... No, I didn't, I had no idea what role I wanted in anything. I just was, I was literally just happy to be here, you know. <laughs> just showing up, man. Just showing just up. 80% of life and is showing up, so. That, that was really how, what it was for me, and I think that allowed me to, people were patient with me and gave me opportunities based on my enthusiasm and likability, but not necessarily having any particular great skill. So I was good with people. So therefore, sales, oh, put this guy, in, he can babysit the team, they'll get along with him, he can put up with them, um, that kind of stuff. And then the announcing part came from, you asked a question before, like, what was the industry like? If there was an event that was being put on, everyone had to figure out, like, what job wasn't being done, and then someone had to do it. And that was promotions, that was marketing, that was operations, that was, you know, hiring caterers, whatever it was, for a demo or a contest, 
It was all DIY from people yeah. who had other jobs. And that literally came all the way down to who's going to announce this weekend. And I was in the right place at the right time. I think the first event I did was a, was a trans world event, like an industry insider event that they didn't have a host for, um, called Board Aid. And that was that was just from being at the front desk at Transworld and hearing that they didn't have someone who was going to be able to MC and me being like, I think I could do it. And that was like my first time that I was on the mic. Did you prep? No. I had no clue what I was going to do. They handed me a piece of paper, sent me out on the stage, and I just started talking. Is that your entertainer's blood running deep in it? Yeah, the, the DNA kicked in hard. Is that easy? Do you attribute it to that? Yeah, 100%. Bit? Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, my earliest memories of my is watching my dad storytell and woo audiences at four or five years He's old. He's a showman. He's a showman of the highest order, yeah. and and a real, true, authentic one, you know. And I I just pulled on whatever that was, and that's that's how it started. And then people would call and be like, "Oh, we heard that you were good at this thing. We're doing a shop demo next week. We'll give you fifty dollars store credit if you come and announce this demo." And be like, "Cool, I'll, I'll, okay." And one thing led to another. How did you get better at it over time? Like, what what are the marks of... How do you learn something like that? Because you don't have formal training. You know, you're a host, right? So so it's just kind of... You, you're kind of carving your own way and your own personality in it because that's what people are after you for, right? Yeah. So how do you balance, like, professionalizing it while maintaining, you know, very much your voice? You know your audience. I mean, I would never announce a contest where I was on site with a bunch of snowboarders in the way that I would a contest on television. It's just two different audiences. Um, and everyone's going to be expecting you to really like talk shit and have fun and not be, uh, not be trying to spoon feed us anything. Like we know what it is, right? It's a different deal. It took a long time to long to learn that. Um, but I think it was paying attention to the people who were really good. Like Dave Duncan, um, Double D is a legend in in street skateboard in skateboard announcing. He was the first guy who was kind of like a weird mentor, and I just picked up on certain things that he did. Like he his thing was he knew the particulars of every individual, like what their signatures were and what in their personality made them perform in the way that they did. And so he'd he'd weave that into his commentary. So you know it'd just be so cool to to watch him describe Tony Hawk and you know, uh, Mike Frazier and, you know, all these different guys whose personalities were, were very different, but you, you didn't know them. But you could, he would explain it in a way so that you got it to see it through their skateboarding. Um, and so I borrowed bits from him big time. That involves a lot of prep work, by the way, knowing those guys, right? It involves a lot of paying attention when you hang around them and just being a sponge and listening to stories and then, you start telling one in the middle of someone's run, and they're like, where'd that come from? You're like, I don't know. But people found it interesting. So you can switch off and on. You can be a really good listener, and then you can also be the guy commanding attention as well. You have to be a better listener um, and have a, be willing to not say anything more than, than anything else. And I, I think if you're, not, if you're not paying attention, you're, you're, not, you're just, you're just going to sound like a broken record. And I think l- later in life, it really became about waking up every day and actually being like, I actually don't, I know nothing. Like everything that I thought I knew yesterday was cool, but I really don't know anything because it yeah, doesn't really it might, matter today. It might give you some context. It might give you something to draw on in a conversation, but every 
every kind of new gig is probably a new opportunity for you to understand a bit more about the sport, about the, what I find is interesting, by the way, you, you, um, you started in, in action sports and then, uh, now you're doing the vice world of sports. What do you, what, what role do you see sports playing, you know, in, in terms of like explaining greater context or socioeconomics, uh, you know, your, your father's from a country, you're from a country, um, by way of him, <laughs> where uh, sport plays, you know, played a great role after apartheid, you know, the, the rugby team. Mm. Um, how, how do you, what, what draws you to that part of it? I think there's only a few, there's a, there's a few things that provide commonality for large swaths of us, right? Religion, food, uh, politics, and sports. For me, I think those are the those are like four things that everyone needs in some way, shape, or form. And even when I say religion, that might not be necessarily a, a God relationship, but a collective way of thinking or worldview. We'll say worldview. Those are things that you can instantly have conversation and people can have commonality with each other. Um, and sports is most interesting, I think, because of our innate desire to play. That's like playing is just some dna shit like you don't have to teach a kid how to play it is his natural desire from a very young age to play and figure out ways to entertain himself and then he discovers that he can you know he or she can do it with friends and it becomes this this great way to explore you know what else is possible um and because of that it's something that we can all relate to whether we participate in it later in life or not we all understand what it means um, and then what I think is most fascinating about sports culturally is that in some areas it's just a, it's entertainment, right? It's, you, they've got options for all different things that you can be into and all different sports. And maybe it's entertainment for, for most people. And then the people who are really, really, really great and have an incredible ability and they shine, everyone supports them and says, we're going to hold you up because... It's, we can't comprehend what you do, but we're going to celebrate you and celebrate your sport. And then in other places, it's a rite of passage. Like if you want to become, uh, if you want to move on to the next level of life, this is the, the only thing that's available for you. And you've got to pass through this fire in order to be validated as hmm. an adult. I'm thinking of a, when you when you were telling that, I was uh, talking about that. I was thinking of like high school football in Texas. Right. Is that kind of, would you say that would be one of the filters there? Or? Yeah, I'd say high school football in Texas or, you know, if you're, if you're in the small village of Eton in Kenya and you're trying to decide whether or not you're going to farm uh, or you want to see the world, well, you can farm or you can start running. And if you run hard enough and fast enough and can become elite, now you have access to the entire world. Right. And no one's really doing it for any other reason than that. It's not just like for fun on a Saturday. Because so much of, you know, people's exposure to action sports seems like, you know, these guys are just doing it for laughs. You know, this can't be that serious. It can't be that professional. Um, is that, you know, surely the early days, would you agree that it was typically like that? It was like you guys couldn't believe they were they were getting paid or they were going to be on national TV doing this? I don't think guys could believe they were getting paid, but if you dug into the backstory of most every kid 
that was performing at a high-end level, you could find a very shitty, challenging backstory. Right. Of, you know, this sport providing providing an outlet from their life. So you got a taste of that already, like that that, that was part of that storytelling that you wanted to do around this. For sure. I, I think I was always most curious about people's stories. You know, at a certain point, you can watch people do anything great, and it's like it becomes white noise. But if you have some context into why they're great or what they've had to, to, to get through or w- what they've been given, you know, in their, their history to get them to that place, they become far more interesting. You know, it becomes far more exciting to watch. You can watch Sean White ride a snowboard, ride a half pipe, and go, wow, that's a 20-foot, two-foot backside air. Right. Then you know that his parents drove him around in a white Scooby-Doo van to every mountain uh, around the country and barged the contest and made sure, like, weird Little League parents that, you know, he got to take a run in front of the cameras when he was four, five, six years old, and that wasn't a thing. There weren't kid snowboarders, but they believed that everyone needed to see their Sean White. Now that 22-foot backside air looks like something else completely, you know? Yeah. No, and, and I mean, I, I think that that's... You know, that's something that as you're as you get better at storytelling, you understand the context and you want to tell more of those stories. Did you want to avoid being a translator for a mainstream public? Is that also what you were you just kind of like, you know, I've done that for a bit and I'm I'm done with it or you mean you know, translating this this relatively kind of new sport sporting area to an audience that's that's broader, you know, that doesn't understand it. I I I think I I learned when I got to ESPN, how important it was that I'd be able to put things in the context. And again, like I could know everything about it, but if I couldn't make it possible for someone in the middle of the Midwest who had no concept of, of what this was, if I couldn't tell them in a way that made sense to them, then anything I was saying was kind of worthless. And I think that that was the most important thing about, and the, the greatest gift I got when I wasn't just announcing bro contests or doing something on MTV and now put in this place where, like, Stuart Scott's coming on after you. And, you know, uh, some other great announcer was on before you, like, from a college basketball game. And then in this window, the same audience of people who are paying attention to the front and the back end, you need to keep them. Yeah. This isn't a joke. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was very humbling. And also, you need to learn how to do it in a professional manner, when we count you in and count you out and all these different things that are happening, um, that's when it became something brand new entirely. How'd you get good at that? Uh, time and a lot of failure. I was horrible. Um, I, I believe I was really, really horrible for a very long time. I don't think I started to get good at uh, hosting and commentating till. I'd say probably around 2005 or six. I started How long in 99. 99. But I think for the first f- five, six years, the only thing that was keeping me on television was my enthusiasm and the fact that I, I knew what I was talking about. Like the information at its base was, was true and unique. No one, was, no one else was going to be able to give you that information. However, I don't think I was very good. I just I think that I was average at best and i wasn't i also was having such a good time i was partying my ass off right i was like i'm on tv (laughs) (laughs) oh 
holy shit, I'm on TV. I gotta make the most of this. Traveling the world with Tony Hawk and you name it. I'm I'm not supposed to be here. Send it. Let's have all the fun on earth yeah. and let's try to show up to the contest on time and be able to speak in complete sentences. So why did you want to get why did you want to get better? I wanted to get better because I reached a point where I realized the opportunity that I had. And I realized that I had I had I really had a shot. I think the first few years I didn't think it was gonna last. So I'm just gonna have fun. And there wasn't like there wasn't a a long media career in my horizon. I was just waiting for it to be over because most other things that had been great in my life professionally up until then would last a few years and then for whatever circumstances it would be over and now I had to find something else. So I wasn't used to the idea of thinking it's okay. You don't have to like be ready to run and do some other shit and do a dance to like make people like you. You're actually it's okay for you to figure out how to get great at this and actually try to be the best and and actually be able to look forward and start to envision a future that maybe is different than what it is right now, but that continues from where you are right now. I, I, I just didn't think in a long-term future. Like, when you asked me before if I went to college, I went for six months only because I was like, this feels like it's been my whole life already, and I'm missing out. So I'm going to go surfing. I'm going to go struggle at all these other shit jobs instead of going to school for four years. That's how fucked up my mindset was. But for me, Do you I regret think, that, by the way, not going to college? No, yeah. I don't. Okay. But I laugh at... Like that that was my mindset. That's how that's just how I thought. You know, I was like, Oh, sorry, four years. That by the time I get out of this thing, the whole world's gonna have moved on without me. So I can't be here. But that's just not my brain didn't work that way. And it was like that, I think, in uh in a lot of jobs and shit that I had too. So yeah, that the light finally coming on and being like, dude, nobody gets this opportunity. And they've been putting up with your shit this whole time because you you at least are genuine. You know, this you you have a passion here and you have the ability to to create relationships with these athletes in a way that other people don't, but that ain't gonna last forever. So what are you gonna do with it? And that's that's when it started to get fun. When it when it was okay for me to be vulnerable and actually acknowledge that, oh shit, like I've been fooling everybody up until now. It's time to get your shit together. What kind of stories do you most like telling? Now? Yeah. Now I think I most enjoy telling stories of people or places that you would normally not be familiar with, um, but something that you know, like uh, like sports, can, can be a lens into people, places, or cultures that you thought you knew or didn't know you should care about. And if you can find some commonality in a story of a young kid from Accra, Ghana, you know, in a little small fishing village called Bukom, who's trying to box his way into the world, um, cool, you know, or if, if you can find a way to be interested in, you know, a South African street kid in Durban who's been homeless since he was seven years old and doing heroin and sniffing glue and may or may not have been preyed upon for his youth by older men, but then discovers skateboarding and skateboarding gives him power to take control of his life, come to Los Angeles, and now be a pro skateboarder, that's the story I want to tell you. You know, that's that's the kind of stuff that I find most interesting. 
And what's the audience for those kinds of stories nowadays? Everyone. Right. Is it harder to harvest their attention, though? Because now we process so many small bits of information constantly, I believe that we are starving to be engaged, like starving to be engaged and be forced to pay attention um, in a way that was never necessary before. I mean, think about what documentary-style storytelling is now. We have entire platforms now devoted to long-form, thoughtful content, both in the scripted and the non-scripted space, in a way that never existed before, at a time when we're supposed to be of the most sort of attention-deprived. And I think it's because we're starving. I think that's the only reason why a Netflix or... um, or any of these type of platforms can exist now is because people are like, oh my God, that feels so good. I can feel yeah. that feels so good and it's made a difference in how I'm going to to, to look at the world or think about the world today yeah. and then go back to fucking 10 different platforms of social media and you know facts not needing to exist in the short-term processing of information. So yeah, while I think it's competitive... I think it's just something that we're... I I think the way that we consume uh, social media and walk around with literally 100,000 people in our pockets at all times, that's not natural. It's something that we've chosen to do. It's it's the way we've chosen to live our life. And we're all running around pretty much full of shit in thinking that we're engaged. It's impossible to fucking remain engaged and process as much shit as we are processing all damn day. I think we suffer in our relationships. We suffer in our relationship with ourselves. Uh, as as a result. But that's just the choice that we've made in society right now. Um, but because of that, when people are can feel, when you're given a story that people can feel, they're going to stop, look, and they're going to they're gonna engage. And I think that's why these types of programs are, are, I think, more successful now than ever. And where do you see yourself in the future? Because you were talking about how, you know, you wanted, when you finally decided on, you know, this is a career and making this, really making a go of it as a career, you were looking not in the next five years, not in the next 10 years, but for the rest of your life. Um, the media landscape's gotten complicated, as we just talked about. Where do you see yourself in this in this going forward? I have no clue. Right. <laughs> so you could pro- <laughs> perhaps provide some tips. Um, I, I, you know what I do? I, I shouldn't say I have no clue. Now... Um, the greatest gift I think I have in my career is that if it, if I can't feel it, if it doesn't compel me, I'm not going to do it. Um, so when opportunities present themselves or when I'm trying to build, you know, uh, ideas for things that I'd like to sell or develop, if I can't feel them, if it doesn't feel like it's going to be worth failing at, then I don't do it. Feeling, well, interesting that it's worth failing at. In other words... If I fail, yeah, right. If it doesn't, if it doesn't succeed, right, would it have at least need to have been worth it to go through that? I can still high five at the end that we fucking almost got there. What an interesting way of approaching, you know, or of gauging new projects. That's like it, looking looking at the worst case scenario and like, will all I've sacrificed for this have been worth? Have felt worth it? If, yeah. In the worst case scenario, is it going to be the end of my life if it, this if this doesn't? If we don't win or don't succeed at this. Do I want to die on Everest or do I want to die on a boulder in Joshua Tree? Right. <laughs> right. And I think that that's that's mostly how uh, 
how I do things now because I think I I, I learned in being in different different parts of the the corporate journey, it's tiring to do someone else's bidding solely, you know, to just to be told what to say and how to say it, and you got to go and like you got to go dance and make it look like it's all you. Uh, and at certain points, like this, that's not really it's not that much fun. But if I can work with people who say, we'd like you to inject as much of yourself as you can into this idea or in, into, into this, this landscape um, and we'll and do it together, then I'm, in, I'm, I'm far more into that. Now. Yeah, it takes courage to break free of your corporate over, overlords, though, doesn't it? That's how I got to Red Bull. Like when, I made, when, when my deal at ESPN came up in 2013... Um, I was gonna sign another five-year deal. Yeah, at ESPN, I'd been there for thirteen years. Everything's going great, but the X Games to me had become a far different spaceship than the one that I had gotten on in the late '90s. And I just felt like it doesn't feel like this represents the culture anymore, and I'm not excited. And the idea of 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 staying on. There's, there's nothing worse than someone who's well compensated for a job they don't enjoy doing. That person's going to have a very hard time not looking spoiled and entitled and complacent. And I was becoming that person. And I had some connections here at Red Bull, and I saw what the media house was doing. And I was like, wait a minute, that's the only place that is actually trying to, in every single landscape that they decide to, to say, like, okay, we're here, they're celebrating the ideas Um and the core end of what that culture needs or wants. And they're basically saying, what do you guys want to do? What does is, what is your sport need right now? What is, what is, your, uh, what is this end of music or, or b-boying culture? What does what this need right now? How can we support it? And that was attractive to me. And I saw that they were starting to do a lot more storytelling, and there, there wasn't a person like me there um, to, to maybe help put some of it in the context. So I reached out and said, I like what you guys are doing. This reminds me of like the person that I, that I want to be. It, is there a way that we could perhaps work together? Yeah. And they were like, are you sure? Really? You'd leave? You'd leave ESPN and come here? I was like, absolutely. And, and since I've been here for the last four and a half years, not only have they allowed me to do that in action sports, but when they discovered that I had a passion in music, they were like, oh, well, how about if we plug you in here? And we're going to do this thing with the season of festivals. Cool. Oh, what's that? You have a band? Like, how can we support that? Like, that's any other place that I'd been before. I'd be like, mm, that's, yeah. that's not, that doesn't apply here. Yeah, yeah. By the way, I'm surprised you haven't, uh, I should say to the regular listeners of the pod that uh, there's a new sheriff in town and uh, the recording studio is just a lot sexier than before and it's filled with all kinds of keyboards of varying age and there's double keyboard is that an organ over there it is so how badly do you want to just you know get up and wander around and start tickling the ivories here you know i have had the privilege of um working in the studio my music that's when it's a sexy studio it's a, man. It's a great place yeah. last year we were getting my we were getting my band Alakazam ready to go and play um, the Afropunk Music Festival. Oh, great. We had those guys in a couple of episodes back. They're Fantastic awesome. people, yeah. So we played in Paris uh, last year. 
And when we got the call that we were, we had gotten the gig, it was amazing. And it, but it was also like we need to fucking play <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Where can we play? Where can we play and rehearse and feel like we're not under the gun of like a studio time? Yeah. So that we could get in and really get sounding and feeling like we did when we made the the record. And you know, it was so cool just to reach out to a couple of people here at the company and be like, "Do you think?" Absolutely. That yeah. sounds great. Sure. And it ended up being perfect. Like we we came here and it felt like we were coming to band camp every day. Right. Right. You know? It's it's incredibly sexy. It's like the size of my when I did middle school band, it's probably the auditorium size of my middle school auditorium. It's yeah. pretty like it's it's definitely special. It's uh, but uh, where are you at right now in your music music career? I'm about to put out. Uh, we're about to put out a second album. Ooh, when's that dropping? When's your, when's your new shit dropping? When's bro? your hey? Unless you're <laughs> dropping, don't even come on the pod. Exactly. Um, we we will drop uh, the new album, Soundproof Heart. Uh, this July. Oh, great. Okay, and you'll be playing at Bonnaroo. And we're playing Bonnaroo 2017. Which is great, because you actually have been, you've I, been covering Bonnaroo for I will for be doing Red double duty. Wow. I'm going to be hosting. How do, you, uh, how do you like switching that, by the way? I don't know. I haven't oh, done do you, but, <laughs> but, I mean, you're, you're a performer yourself. I mean, that must surely help you in interviews with people oh, as well. I mean, best. How is it being on the other side of it uh, as an as a interviewer? It's, it's an interlocutor, inter, in, interlocator, interlocutor, cuter, 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 or cater. No help here. No, of course not. Um, it's yeah. uh, it's fun. It's fun to be able to sit with the musicians and know how to know how to take them out of their heads. I think I have a a, a good ability to find some common ground with them, but at the same time, it can't be like. Hey, uh, you know I'm in a band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I uh, I play a little bit too, by the way. So hey, what's <laughs> I totally know what that feels like because I just I just played a set, and no big deal. Yeah. But you know, hey, Gary Clark Jr. <laughs> you know I I sing notes, bro. No, none of that. Absolutely none of that. However, just knowing how an artist thinks in in what what the journey is yeah. and what those ex- experiences are and trying to get that kind of stuff out of them um they usually be like oh you're not just trying to like ask me the same question that everyone else has before cool and that that makes it fun and but, you and you by the way you also you find these two sides of your life harmonize quite seamlessly it seems like the 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 music side the musical expression side and then the storytelling side and in the sports realm that's all storytelling Making music is just st- writing stories. Now, at least for me, that's my my brother was asking me the other day. He's like, "How do you, how do all, the, how do you do approach all these different things?" And I said, "All of it, whether I'm helping someone build a brand, or writing a song, or commentating, it's all for me, or doing a document. It's all storytelling. It's all about staying true to what that story is and." trust in the journey awesome sal thank you very much i'd like to apologize to your audience for probably using way too many words 
Uh, curse words? No, just words in general. Oh, words Whatever. in general? Oh, violent. no, no. I thought, I thought it was the he right amount of words. Well, no, thank no. you. It was the right amount of words, um, and we'll probably cut, like, massive <laughs> amounts of this interview. <laughs> so I wouldn't worry about it. I know. So thank you very, very much for having me, man. This is, uh, <laughs> exactly. this is, uh, this is really cool. Very cool Great. Dive. Thank you so much. Right on. All right. All right. Thank you, Sal. We didn't end up cutting the whole thing, turns out. It's a full hour. What a beautiful voice that man has. You can actually hear it on stage at Bonnaroo. If you can't be at Bonnaroo, you can watch it. Watch him and his band, Alakazam, perform at Bonnaroo on Red Bull TV during the season of festivals. Uh, thanks to producer extraordinaire uh, T. Rizza. Thank you to First Name James, the first name in podcasting, our engineer. Associate producer Ryan the Turbo Thurban. Uh, leave a review about, of us. Leave a review of us, I should say. On iTunes, help other people find us. Uh, also head on over to RedBulletin.com. There's some great stories there in addition to an archive of uh, these podcasts. All right, see you next time.